From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Nebraska State Senator and Congressional Candidate Tony Vargas. Our identities, and I'm Latino, I'm a person of color, are much more complex than just our party affiliation. And at the end of the day, I think people are looking for politics to be more about what is the humanity, what are the problems we're trying to solve in this world and in our country and in our communities, rather than the parties. I never shy away from being a Democrat. I am proud to be a Democrat. I'm even prouder to be all those other identities I just shared with you. And I want to make sure people know as much as possible about me. And I think if more people did that, we would probably have a stronger, more civil society. We talk about Vargas's upbringing, his worldview, and how he navigates the polarized world we live in today. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Hi, and you're listening to Car Free Midwest. We're a podcast based in Omaha, Nebraska, exploring the stories, barriers, and joys of getting around the Midwest without a car. Our goal is to build a community around more transportation equity and less car dependency. I'm Sarah Johnson. And I'm Joshua LeBure. We'll be here every other week with interviews, topics, and documentary pieces covering all things transportation. And we'll be talking a lot about bikes, e-bikes, and cargo bikes, because once you get to know us, you'll find that that's what we're obsessed with. So subscribe to Car Free Midwest wherever you listen to podcasts. A production of Figure Podcasts. With support from Mode Shift Omaha. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Nebraska State Senator Tony Vargas, who is currently running against incumbent Don Bacon to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District in the House of Representatives. Here is our conversation. You're from uh, New York originally, right? I am. It's funny because it's it's almost always on the show the other way around, where it's like people get out or they want to get out, <laughs> and uh, instead of like they escape from Nebraska to the coast instead of coming here. So, I mean, what was what was New York like for you? You know, New York is. Uh, you know, everybody has their idea of what New York is and is not. For me, New York was, was born in Queens, raised all over New York, Long Island, upstate New York. I was a teacher in Brooklyn. It is where my family is. It's where my family set up and found a life and lived the American dream. And so that's it's very nostalgic for me in that way. And but at the same time, Nebraska has been my home as an adult. This is where I have got married. This is where I have two young kids born and being raised. This is also the place that's taken me in. Uh, The only things I'll tell you I miss are. If it wasn't for Bagel Bin, I'd have a real hard time here. I'm not going to lie. I miss bagels, but Bagel Bin's my go-to here. And uh, pizza, again, Noli's has saved me too. If it wasn't for Noli's, I, I would be have a hard time. Noli's and Via Farina are the ones that get me. Um, and my family, you know. So New York was a, a wonderful place to to sort of start. And But this is where I've been raising my family and where we want to grow old together, me and my wife, my family. So when you decided to become a teacher, what was it that pushed you in that direction? It is my family. You know, I'm, my parents came to this country with nothing and they always talked about taking care of our family. And at that time it was always our aunts, our uncles, my cousins. But growing up, I realized that I had certain things in our life that, it was getting harder and harder for our family members to be successful, and it was it was a hard life. You know, we lived in one bedroom apartment for years. I was on the free and reduced lunch program growing up. Like we were trying to make ends meet, and so was my entire extended family. And then I was able to go to high school, graduate, you know, and go to college. And then I realized I have a college degree; I could do something with this, or I don't. And I decided to become a teacher, and. I never thought I would be a teacher, but it was the <laughs> the most important part of my life outside of my kids and marrying my wife because it reminded me that 
there are kids just like I was growing up that didn't have all the same circumstances, were struggling and had a lot of obstacles. And largely we need people in their lives that have a lot of faith and belief and believe in grit and perseverance and are never going to give up on them. And I was lucky that they allowed me to be their teacher <laughs> and it's changed my life. really has. You taught science? I taught science. I not, taught, not history or poli-sci? No, or anything no, like, okay. no, no. I, listen, I, there wasn't a political bone in my body up until years, you know, I became an elected official. I was a public middle school science teacher. I was teaching geology, you know, metamorphic rock and igneous rock. I was teaching about, you know, the cells as the unit of life and, you know, earth science, chemistry, biology, you name it. That's that's what I was teaching. How'd you end up teaching science specifically? You know, I was uh, I studied biology in in college and I loved it. I really thought that I would at one point become a biologist, a zoologist, maybe. Um, and I, I got into a program, an AmeriCorps program called Teach for America, and I became a teacher. They place teachers in um, in really high need public schools across the country, and my placement was in Brooklyn and New York City, and that's where I was placed. And so I became a middle school science teacher because of my biology background and um, had 165 kids. They were amazing. They taught me everything I needed to know about life. They... And they they pushed me and, and and I pushed them to excel and do more. But that's how I became a middle school science teacher. When you say that they taught you everything you needed to know about life, what what were some of those lessons? Oh, they taught me that uh, when you build a genuine culture, amazing things can happen. And my, that for me, the culture was my classroom. My kids wanted to have a safe space. They wanted to feel to feel like they can be themselves with their failures and their successes that people will pick them up. People will still unconditionally support them uh, at their worst and at their best. And I think we forget that our communities, our cultures, our public systems are also driven by culture. Um, They also taught me that expectations is a good thing. Expecting more from people and from systems and from support structures is an incredibly important thing. It is our lifeline. And they reminded me that as a teacher, it's my responsibility as students, their responsibility to each other. And in our community, it's my responsibility to build those connections with parents and community members. And that's how we make meaningful change in this world. That's that's what they taught me. It's, it's honestly how I believe I've become an elected official. People entrusted me and believed in me enough because we listened to each other. We worked together to solve problems. And that's what my kids taught me. Yeah, I mean, it's something where you have to kind of learn how to work a crowd to some extent. But a middle school crowd is probably a difficult one to learn how to work. You know, if you were unwilling to build a relationship with a middle school student and not take yourself too seriously, you you will have a hard time hanging in as a middle school teacher. And for all the teachers out there, thank you for what you do. Middle school teachers have a special place in my heart. Middle school, that's, it's, it's an age, you know, they're going through a lot. And that's, that's what they taught me. They taught me that, you know, we're always going through identity, you know, development in our life. We're always growing. And, you know, I think people, middle school students are looking for teachers to be a, a role model for how to grow as a person. And they reminded me that. And I'm not the all-knowing on everything. No teacher is. And I think middle school students want to see that. They want to see that humility, humanity. See, I thought for a second you might go the direction of like, well, middle schoolers are kind of immature, which was a good primer for the state legislature. <laughs> no, no, no. No, more, more so they taught me, you know, and, 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 it, and it's its own idea. You know, I, I constantly have this conversation with my family and my wife about politics that I'm a very idealistic pragmatist pragmatic idealist. I was that way in my classroom. And being civil and being passionate are not diametrically opposing ideas. It's possible to do both. I did it in my classroom. I was able to do it in, in, in my work. And that's how I try to carry out my work as a senator. 
Well, and so uh, as a teacher, teachers are generally kind of voiceless because schools don't really want them to have this. They don't want to give off the impression that very vocal teachers are bringing that into the classroom. And uh, I think that that leads to this idea that then for certain people who are not teachers who have some political power, it's easy to make them scapegoats. Uh, because they can't really fight back in any meaningful way uh, without threatening job security. And I think in the culture war right now, we see that happening a lot. I mean, was, was, did you experience anything along those lines? You know what I experienced? I experienced that teachers need more support, not less. Uh, we need to think the best of them. Um, we need to invest in them. Uh, they're spending most of their time with our next generation. Uh, and we always have to constantly assume the best in the system. And it's not always like that. The system isn't always assuming the best of teachers in every single step of the process for supporting them. Um, and I've seen that. And it's one of the reasons why I actually got into public policy in the education world. I started to see that we can invest in teachers. We can invest in, in, in ways to support principals. We can invest in communities and organizations that are empowering parents. Like, these are all important things. It's always I talk about an ecosystem a lot in politics because if you think that elected officials like myself hold all the influence, what we really is important is when we empower and figure out how to lift up the voices of those doing this work. Teachers are one of them. It's one of the reasons I was a teacher. It's also one of the reasons why I continue to try to make sure we're supporting them. When was it that you left teaching? Uh, I left teaching uh, a few years shortly after entering it, uh, actually, to become a teacher coach. I started coaching teachers all over New York City and across the country. It made me feel like I had an additional purpose because if I'm able to meet other teachers and and empower them and figure out ways that they can grow and develop as leaders, they're going to impact more students. And I'm going to expand the reach of how I have been, have learned and been taught by my own students in the classroom. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Nebraska State Senator Tony Vargas, who is currently running against incumbent Don Bacon to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. Join the conversation on social media using hashtag Riverside Chats. And so, I mean, when does politics enter into kind of the, at least the plan? Or, I mean, when does it go beyond just yelling at the TV? You know, uh, and it's, it's fine. I never even did the yelling at the TV. And, you know, I, I, it is a lovely set of circumstances. I met my wife, and she was a teacher too. And we connected on our love for making good change and, and fighting for parents and families and children. And she wanted to change careers. And, and she decided she wanted to go into law to try to get her law degree and do good for for kids and families. And I wanted to support that. And that was the move from New York to Nebraska. And that was – we moved here when I was 26 years old. I was, a, I was young still in my career, in my life. And Nebraska became um, the place that we fell in love with because they accepted us accepted me and my wife and allowed us to do good. And I'll tell you, the way that I became into politics was not politics, was largely because there was an, a vacancy on a school board in OPS, where we are right around here, right in this building, right where Tech High is, right? And, uh, and that vacancy, they were looking for a school board member to fill a vacancy and complete a term. And they were looking for somebody that was cared about education, cared about kids in high-need situations, want to make sure we're fighting for equity and equality and make sure we're improving our entire education system. I am a product of the public education system. I am a former teacher. I've worked across the country in, in schools, and and now I get to do good in my community. So I applied, and they picked me. And then I get to become an elected official overnight. More importantly, I got to fight to earn the support of my community and do good. And so you had to run for that, though, right? Uh, yes. I mean, not run as in a campaign. I, I, was, uh, I was selected by the existing board, and uh, the existing board picked me out of a pool of candidates, and then overnight I became an elected official. And that's, <laughs> that's how I became elected official. There wasn't a political bone in before saying, you have to be a politician. It was the last thing that most of my friends and family and my wife would say that I would do in my career, I thought I'd be leading a nonprofit or, or working in organizing and organizing or trying to do some sort of social good change. And this is the avenue that 
opened up, and it's been an amazing experience for me and my family. I mean, it sounds like you've always been pretty ambitious, though, right? I mean, it's not like – it sounds unlikely that you would have been teaching middle school for 30 years and retiring, right? Because you kind of wanted to I – don't, I don't know if it's to move around or to you know try to enact things in kind of a broader scope. But there's something about it that seems fitting with the arc that you've built so far. Well, I'll tell you this. My parents came to this country with nothing. I think about it all the time. You know, they – my mom is the oldest of – of uh, eight kids and I don't know how she did it like they had nothing they didn't know the language they didn't have any money to their name and they didn't have an education beyond a high school degree and that's in Peru and they figured out a way to start a life and I have a college degree you know I was able to do good in the classroom I realized that people like me don't often get into positions to actually make meaningful change in policy somebody that is first generation in this country, somebody that has worked their way through college and and has actually been in many of the situations that many of our students and families have been in. There's not many people actually making those decisions in policy. And I realized there's that perspective and identity is is valuable and that it's very in short supply. And so that's how I got into this. It's both uh, unique and random at the same time, but it's my life, and I've been really fortunate to be part of it. So in your new role then, were you able to uh, engage with middle schoolers again? Uh, yes, but <laughs> all, all different ages. I was, working, I was working in everything from kindergarten all the way through uh, you know, seniors you know, all over the country, and I realized that uh, I really did love and enjoy, enjoy teaching middle school, uh, but there, there are their own challenges in high school and in uh, kindergarten and first grade and elementary. So it is very, very different and unique. Well, it sounds like, I mean, then that gives you kind of a wide skill set of just knowing what problems people are having in a lot of different contexts. Uh, so when does the state legislature come into your, uh, come into your focus? You know, I served on the Omaha Public School Board for about three and a half years. I loved my time there. I learned a tremendous amount. The thing I probably learned the most is uh, at that time, my community didn't elect me. I was appointed by the existing board. I was trying to earn the support of people and do good right by them, finishing somebody else's time. And I took it to heart. I spent my time working on initiatives that tried to improve access for communities, improve our parent and student engagement. You know, we created our first Office of Equity and Diversity. We did our first strategic plan in OPS at that time. We passed the first bond. We're building, we built four new schools in South Omaha and many more across the city. And I'm really proud of the work we did. It was not easy working with um, so many different entities. It was very difficult to be moving these things, but it was the right thing to do. And we, it was, it was a great time. And I realized, but many of my families were struggling outside of education. I started to see the housing insecurity that my own family faced. I was starting to see that wages weren't keeping up and that people were making really tough decisions and trade-offs in their life. I started to see that people didn't know how to pay their bills and were still struggling to get food on the table. And I heard this from our nonprofit organizations that were the lifelines around the community. And I realized that there's more that needs to be done. And I saw that there were two people running for office in my district, and both of which neither of which presented me with an option to say, I really want to vote for that person because they have the best interests of the community at mind. I was seeing things that were not in alignment with what I was hearing on the ground from families. And so I decided to run because I know and I had done this work and it's up to the voters to decide. And I wanted to give them another option. And they picked me <laughs> after 40,000 you know, talking to 40,000 voters, you know, you know, hundreds of you know, tens of thousands of doors and, and phone calls. I won the election and became a state senator in 2016. And now the work begins. So, how, like, how do you know when you decide I want to run for office? How do you know how to run and how to do it well? <laughs> you, you don't. <laughs> I mean, if anybody knows how they do it, they probably come from it. I didn't. I mean, since I didn't, uh, I'd never run a campaign before. I'd never volunteered on a campaign before. I hadn't even donated before. I mean, 
my first understanding of a campaign was when I ran my own campaign and I had a group of people that believed in me, uh, not only obviously my wife, but my campaign manager at the time, Meg Mandy, who fast forward is my campaign manager now for Congress. I, you know, I had a group of people that had seen, that had had experience working with me while I was on the school board. And those people took a, a chance on me. And uh, I'm lucky because it was that group of individuals, community members, neighbors that said, we're going to knock on doors with you because we know what kind of person you are. We've seen you and we've seen what you've tried to do and what you have done. And we want that representative in in the state Senate. And so that's how we made it happen. I mean, I was a teacher. The way that you built relationships with students and the way you build relationships with your community, you knock on their door, you talk. You listen, you figure out what you share, what are the common ground that you have with people. And I did that for tens of thousands of homes and people. And at the end of it all, uh, I, I believed in my heart that I'd be able to earn their support if I could actually build a genuine relationship with them. And I was elected by the people. That was in 2016? That was in 2016. So that's a year that was uh, pretty tense for a lot of people. And yes, it was. Still hangs over us, I think, <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, that's how, did that, did the, the I don't know, the, the especially sort of polarized and sort of crude and, I don't know, the almost dark feeling that that year had, did that play into the race at all on your end? I felt it. Uh, you know, this was a year that I think, well, my, I don't think, I know, you know, people are going to look back at it and be like, I know how I felt. They were either elated or they were excited. And I was scared. You know, I was worried. And part of the reason is I was running for office in a time where national politics was at one of its most partisan heights. And uh, and I was running at a time when Trump was running. And I was talking to every voter, Democrat, independent, Republican. I was knocking on their door. The thing that gave me a glimmer of hope, which still gives me a glimmer of hope to this day, is the number of Democrats, Republicans, and independents that I was able to earn their support and vote. That despite many of them that might have voted for, you know, Trump or for Clinton, there was an overwhelming number of people in my district that voted for me. I won about 64% of the vote, which told me that we were earning the votes from people all across the political aisle. And at the end of the day, I think that's one of the the small silver linings here that we can find in politics, which is no matter how divided we feel, we can always build civic health and win back people's faith in government. In fact, it's our responsibility. I find it's my responsibility as an elected official to do that. But that that was a silver lining in a very tenuous partisan time um, in an election. What's your take on the two-party system? We have two parties, uh, and people, I think people seek and identify with the parties for different reasons. Some because they wholeheartedly believe that it is the most representative of their identity and their policies and what they believe. And I also believe that there's people on the other end of the spectrum that it is easier for them to identify with something because they feel like it is the best representation, not the perfect representation. I think what we need to remember is we are more complex than that. Nebraskans and people in our communities, working families, you know, even when I share this with people, like I'm a dad. I'm first generation in this country. I am a former public school teacher. I am, I probably would say I'm a nerd in a lot of ways. Like I, you know, I am a son, I am a brother, like our identities, and I'm Latino, I'm a person of color, are much more complex than just our party affiliation. And at the end of the day, I think people are looking for politics to be more about what is the humanity, what are the problems we're trying to solve in this world and in our country and in our communities, rather than the parties. I never shy away from being a Democrat. I am proud to be a Democrat. I'm even prouder to be all those other identities I just shared with you. And I want to make sure people know as much as possible about me. And I think if more people did that, we would probably have a stronger 
more civil society, you know, and we can still have the party system. Now, when you are in the state legislature, I imagine it's one of those things where a lot of people have this kind of uh, – they romanticize <laughs> it, right? Uh, it's this idea that this is like the elite intellectuals who have all their – their hearts are in the right places, their brains are in the right – they have brains, all that stuff. And, you know, there are people who are good. There's, you know, there's a mix of people like anywhere else, right? But it's – you know, at a certain time, there's some people – like I, I recently talked to John Kavanaugh and he's – very calm talking about all the things that I think are frustrating him, but I don't see it that much. And the tone that he's giving me, it sounds all pretty neutral. I've also just talked to Megan Hunt again recently, and she expresses some, you know, uh, disenchantment, I guess, with the process for maybe what she thought it would be. What's your experience like? You know, it's interesting. Uh, You just named two of my colleagues who I care about very deeply. And it's this, this is where I make a connection back to my classroom. My kids taught me that culture is everything and then how we shape and create and support one another shapes what we are able to do. And I do. I, I believe that the Nebraska legislature, the unicameral, is shaped by the people that we elect to be part of it. And we constantly have work to do. I serve with amazing legislators that many of which I can call some of my best friends uh, all come from different walks of life. I have had moments with every single one of them in some way, shape, or form that will, if I was able time to share stories, it would bring back a piece of humanity to people listening. But I also disagree with a lot of my colleagues on a lot of different issues. The goal here is we can figure out time to actually have that debate and figure out how to find the common ground or also be willing to change our minds and grow and fix things. I think it's possible. I've seen it. Does it mean it's perfect? It's not perfect by any means. But I know I'm going to keep trying to be part of the solution here. And I also know that the minute that we start believing that it can be improved is the minute that it will not be improved. And just like my classroom, culture is everything. I want to make sure that we continue to invest in that culture and do everything we can. Well, so it seems like in, in the classroom metaphor, you've gone from like uh, somebody who's maybe not in the classroom to somebody who's in the class to maybe somebody who sits further up to maybe now, okay, I got <laughs> to be the teacher to figure out how to make this all work, right? It keeps getting the, – the role gets a little bit more important every few years. Yes, it does. I, I do say this often, like being a teacher, you know, we, we are elected and there's different interpretations on what representation that means, but at least for me – Part of my responsibility is to be a role model. And that means being a role model and also how we legislate, how we disagree, how we work together, how we talk to one another, how we respect each other, what we do as public, how we engage in that dialogue and how we do it, and how so how we push back and like elevate the standards is all public. And I, I think we should be held accountable to that. But it's on me to also be an example of how to do that better. That's the teacher side, at least, of me. I'm talking today with Nebraska State Senator Tony Vargas, who is currently running against Don Bacon to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District in the House of Representatives. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll continue the conversation after this break. Hello? I want to be a manchi boy. Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, we choose. Sounds like haha. Check out Munchy Boys on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. Uh, Munchy 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 Boys. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. 
Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is, and please leave us a review. I'm talking with Nebraska State Senator Tony Vargas, who is currently running against incumbent Don Bacon to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District in the House of Representatives. Here's the rest of our conversation. What were some of the accomplishments then from your time in the legislature that or either accomplishments or then just sort of like lessons that you thought, okay, I can I can see how to apply <laughs> some of this in a in a broader context? You know, sometimes the accomplishments are always hard. I mean, so I have accomplishments, it's just that word. The things that I'm proud of, right? The things I'm proud of. Um, I'm proud um, that we and the we is the appropriations committee. I've served on the budget committee for my entire time in the legislature. We come from many different walks of life. You know, the chairman is from, you know, Scotts Bluff and Garing, you know, to me representing, you know, downtown in South Omaha. We have, you know, when I first started, we were about a billion dollars in a deficit for the state budget. When I first entered, we had to come back and actually cut an additional $250 million, then in total about a billion dollars from services to our community and do it in a way where it doesn't harm and hold sacred people and working families. That was not an easy thing to do. And over the last five years, we've been able to grow and invest more in people. I'm proud that we did that and worked across the aisle, rural and urban Nebraska, to do that as a committee. It's an example of what can happen when we actually focus on people and solving problems. I'm also proud of the fact that I was able to actually pass legislation and you know despite how anybody ever feels about the party system i've had democrats and republicans vote for my bills i've passed affordable housing bills that help invest in housing in our urban city centers and our highest need communities public health funding that invests in infrastructure to make sure that we're taking care of our loved ones education uh, first-generation college students, grants for low-income students just like me growing up so they can go to higher education in our state, to making sure we are uh, investing in small businesses and, and, and also addressing any barriers that are making small businesses harder to expand and grow. I'm proud of these things. We've been, I've passed about 55-plus bills in my time, and that none of that was done alone. It was done with people across the aisle. And I think that's what makes Nebraska's legislature and this politics really unique. And so that makes sense then as part of the pitch, right, for what you're currently running for, which is to be in the House of Representatives. <laughs> was it was there a, a, like an inciting moment for you that brought you to that decision? An, ex, an exciting moment. Well, it's, um, it could be exciting. Well, <laughs> it's not going to be exciting. I can tell you. Um, there's probably two. Um, one is I, I have two young kids. And, uh, you know, my daughter, uh, who's about two and a half now and was born on Valentine's Day, once you have kids, and I'm one of the few state senators that have kids under the age of five, uh, especially with both me and my wife working full time, it's just very unlikely to have senators do that. And it reminded me how much more connected the policies we do at the state and the federal level can make the changes to make it easier for families to live and to work and not make unnecessary trade-offs. I saw it firsthand, and then I felt it, and it became more personal with my family, and I realized that there's more that we need to do when I was seeing it reflected in my community. The second thing that really reminded me that, uh, and not excited me, but drove me, is uh, I lost my father last year to COVID-19. And I think about him every single day. He really didn't like politics, but he loved me. And he always believed politics was about the elite. It was about the people that were groomed for this. When I got elected the first time, it was the f one of the first times he actually believed politics can actually do good because his son got elected to office. And in the last six years, I've been trying to make sure that I'm following through on that promise. And when we lost him, and when I lost him and I saw that at the beginning of this pandemic, we had leaders across this country and even our own representatives say, downplaying a pandemic when we could have saved more lives. But my father was working, you know, he was an essential worker. It, 
it pained me. And then it hurt me to the core, and I realized that I have a privilege other people don't. Just like I had a privilege when I had a college degree and I become a teacher, I'm a state senator. I can actually do more for our community. I can secure pandemic relief. I can fight to make sure that people know where they can get a test. I can expand testing in our community. I can fight for more resources for culturally inclusive you know, resources to reach my community in South Omaha. I can, I can even take part in a COVID-19 vaccine trial so that people can see me take getting in the vaccine trial and make sure it's okay once it's available. And I realized at a certain point that I was doing more to try to unite and put out the right and best information and not politicize this pandemic than my own representative. And I realized that we need leaders with more compassion and civility in this country. We just do. And this pandemic taught me that when you're not seeing it, sometimes you have to step up to the plate just like I asked my students to when I was asking to help and support each other and do more. And just like when I first ran for the state Senate, I'm trying to make sure that we can save more lives and actually solve problems before they become bigger problems across this country. So Don Bacon tries to walk a line of being... He likes to tout himself as bipartisan uh, and sort of he, I, I think it's generally inconsistent, right? So he portrays himself as a champion bipartisanship and civil discourse while also really being a pretty big cheerleader for Donald Trump uh, in terms of voting. He votes pretty much on party lines for the most part. There's a couple exceptions. But also what I noticed and what disturbed me in his last campaign against Carr Eastman was the rhetorical style was very much a Trump-like campaign. Uh, a lot of immature hyperbole. I got stuff in the mail that would be like a city on fire with a picture of her face that said, Car- Comrade Carr is going to destroy mm-hmm. America. You know, and just stuff like that where the things you're saying, the goals that you're having, I imagine it's difficult, and I think it was difficult for Car Eastman as well, to enter into a place that doesn't necessarily want to have real conversations, talk about policy ideas. It's easier to call somebody a name and just sort of like go with the you know, this cartoon version of you that I've created than it is to talk to you as a human. So, mm-hmm. I mean, how do you enter into that in just the, the post-Trump landscape we're in right now? We enter it by making sure we try. I mean, I will be the first to tell you this is not my first time having difficult conversations with elected officials where I might disagree with them or we are diametrically opposed on issues and we're we're fighting for a policy. And nine years in elected office now, I've realized that people are looking for elected officials to stand up for what's right, but also demonstrate how we get things done and be better. We constantly see that people are looking for better and renewed faith in government. And I've been trying to do that for the last nine years. I get up every single day and I am like focused on trying to make sure we're trying to improve how we work with each other. It is the idealistic in me. It just is. And the truth of the matter is I've seen and what you just described in this last campaign, we often see candidates Congressman Bacon go to the ends of trying to solely focus on getting people scared to vote, scared about a candidate, rather than talking about why they're the best candidate for the job. I've actually spent my time trying to focus on elevating my record and who I am and how I lead. I actually think voters, more importantly, families and people across Nebraska and Omaha 2nd District deserve somebody that's going to focus on trying to solve problems and unite rather than trying to divide us. I believe that in my heart, and that's how I'm going to run the campaign. So um, one of the other things is trying to figure out uh – you know how how do you uh, get in there? How do you get the message across? And as well as is you know the, the, our district is interesting because what was it? I think the one that veered the furthest away from Trump in 2020, mm-hmm. but also elected Don Bacon again, which does suggest a possibility that people are to some extent listening and thinking about who's on there. It's not necessarily going to be straight ticket the whole way down. So you're also entering into that, but it's so hyper partisan. That I mean, I, I guess how do you how do you create a message that reaches both sides that that doesn't just get simplified down to like, well, he's the Democrat, so I know everything about him. <laughs> one, I'm never going to hide from the fact that I'm a Democrat. That's one thing. The second is, I don't think there is one message. I think what we where we fail 
and we, elected officials, people running for office, trying to dilute and figure out what's going to convince somebody to vote for them. That's where we miss the boat. We miss the boat. When I was trying to work with my teachers and my community and the families and parents and build trust, we've got to build trust. We've got to try to talk to people and listen to them. I have been doing that, not just to run for office, but in my entire time as an elected official. And because I have, I know that there's a lot of barriers people are facing right now. At the end of the day, people are struggling to be able to put food on their table. People still have live in substandard housing. People are working 40 hours a week and still are living in poverty. That kind of thing shouldn't be happening in this day and age. I think that the way that we reach people is beyond messaging. It's how do we actually build a relationship with them by knocking on their door, by having a conversation on the phone, and by actually talking about what we intend to do and how we intend to lead, what are our values. I've done that, and I intend to do that in this campaign. I think people deserve that because what I think what we tend to see is trying to get people to then be scared of voting or what you even said, the, the, the attacks that were on Cara last time or the attacks that are on people in general. I think we're better than that. And I think people will expect more of that if we give them that option. So what are some of the big legislative goals then you would have if you get into the House? I continue to hear that people are struggling to be able to make ends meet. And there's many different aspects of that that I think we need to work on. I've always felt that education, specifically investing in people, is one of the biggest lifelines to being able to make changes in our community and for people's families. I'm a product of that. The work that we did in the legislature, investing in K through 12 and higher education and early ed are products of that. And I think we need to continue to work on that. People are still struggling to find jobs with higher wages. We still are not focusing on making sure people have the skills to be in some of these jobs we have available across this country and in Nebraska. We can do a better job of supporting our teachers so that our every student is prepared to enter any job across across Omaha. Workforce development and education investment is something that I want to work on because I'm a product of it. I believe in it. I think that's what's going to be good for our economy and our state. In addition, I think housing is something we tend to push to the side. I've worked on affordable housing and housing initiatives. When people have a house, their first, their first home that they own completely changes the lifeline in the course of their life. So it changed it for my family. If we can invest in improving the housing efforts, the affordable housing and home ownership across this country, and make sure we are improving on the programs that we know work, I think this is going to be a lifeline and game changer for communities across the, across the U.S. And probably the last thing is, I think we've seen this, we need to continue to look towards the future and invest in jobs that are going to make us competitive across the country. Clean energy jobs, electric vehicles, making sure we're investing in companies and in industries that are making waves to reduce our carbon footprint and addressing climate change. These were buzzwords years ago. Now we're seeing that countries are being extremely aggressive on how they're reducing their impact to this world while also making sure to create jobs that are game changers for economies. We need to be competitive in this global economy. And we're not as much as we can. We have an opportunity to do just that. I think we want to focus on that as well. What's holding us back from being more competitive right now? I think what's holding us back is we need to be much more intentional. We need to be focused and we need to build coalitions. We have an opportunity to build a broader coalition, Democrats and Republicans, that care that we should be investing more in these types of jobs and these types of economies. We also need to make sure that we're investing more in American jobs. We are losing out on jobs across the globe, and we have to make an intentional effort to say, here's where we're going to double down on these companies and these industries and these incentives that are going to keep jobs here and grow them. It starts by being aspirational and setting 
really audacious goals, but it also begins with building a coalition of elected officials in Congress to then make sure that they're working together on this. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Nebraska State Senator Tony Vargas, who is running to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. Let us know what you think on social media. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. How terrified are you about climate catastrophe? Because it scares me all the time. And like, you know, John Kavanaugh, obviously he cares a lot about it, but he looked at me and he's like, yeah, we'll figure something out. Well, like, okay, yeah, but I'd surely, I mean, it, it, I guess my cultural sense is a lot of us sort of feel like uh, we're just choosing to drive off a cliff instead of veering to the left on, to stay on the road here. And I'm not sure why, other than I know it's politicized and there's money in politics. As an elected official now, I think part of my responsibility is to react to what we're seeing families go through and also to look ahead. The looking ahead isn't always what I hear when I'm knocking on doors. I was knocking on doors this Saturday and Sunday that passed. And I heard from a father of two who was doing some, he was cutting wood outside, he's doing some remodeling and, you know, he has his loved ones, his son is, you know, going through a lot and is at home right now and he's trying to figure out how to make ends meet. You know, we were talking to another young couple that had a lot of student loans. They're trying to figure out how to pay their bills. And then I talked to another woman who is on a fixed income and, you know, she's a senior citizen and she is trying to make sure that she can afford all of her bills and still, you know, be independent. Most people are facing these really difficult circumstances. They can't pay for their food. They're worried about their health care costs. They're worried about prescription costs. They don't know if they can be able to make their ends meet. We need to react to those things. That's what I want to work on as well. But I'm also going to work on the things that people may not always be listening or reacting to or may not feel as urgent. It's part of my job. We have to do the long term, and we also have to react to how working families across the state and in Omaha are hurting now. What are some of the lessons that you're taking from in the legislature uh, that helped you make some of your bipartisan accomplishments? Or I know you don't like the word accomplishments. You're, the things you're proud of, uh, those collaborations, how, how would you be able to implement some of that in the House? Uh, I'll tell you, the first thing is we need to spend more time with each other. If there's any possibility for us to focus more on problem solving and coming together on issues, it's figuring out where we have common ground and we find common ground by learning more about each other. I'm going to be a member of Congress. That's the goal and that's the hope. And when I do, I'm going to try to spend time with my colleagues, especially those from across the aisle, especially those in my, in my delegation. We have shared, we have shared goals. We want to make sure Nebraskans, no matter who you are, we have a good job, you have good health care, we have good community investments, we have good education, we have good streets. Like, these are all things that we know we can then coalesce around. But sometimes what we do is we assume that other sides or other people on issues, they, they don't want to work together. I think that is something very intentional that I'm going to do. That's how I've led in, in Nebraska legislatures as myself and how I intend to in Congress and on the other side of it is spending more time realizing that we are not the expert on everything. Our job is to listen to and get educated by those that actually know more about the subject matter. I think if we did during a pandemic, we would listen more to doctors and epidemiologists. I think if we're listening in, in economic development, we're looking at how small businesses and medium-sized businesses grow and develop. I think I'm going to need to do a lot more listening and learning and trying to apply that to becoming a better congressperson. Well, and so you have the same uh, campaign manager from your uh, your <laughs> your first. I do. Uh, you know, Meg Mandy. You know, took a chance on me when I first ran for the state senate. Um, she is ex- incredibly idealistic, um, and and wouldn't say that about herself, but I believe that about her. She is also just an incredible, uh, incredibly focused and understands what needs to get done in the long term. And more importantly, she believed in me when a lot of people didn't. And I now fast forward six years later and we 
uh, her and I and the rest of my team, Christina, Morgan, Sam, many others that have served in my, you know, Brandon, Eric, many others that served in my office, we have done amazing things. We were able to do it because we believed in each other and we did this and she's not running my campaign. She, she was the campaign manager for Medicaid expansion. When many people didn't believe that we can expand Medicaid to, to help working families across the state of Nebraska, she said, yeah, no, that's, that's not how this works. We're going to educate people and give them the choice. And when given the choice, Nebraskans voted to expand Medicaid expansion to help working families. And we're going to do the exact same thing in this campaign. And I'm lucky that I have my best friend, uh, Meg, with me in this world. And uh, I, get to, I get to actually do this work with her. And, and I'm also lucky I have my amazing wife and family that uh, are on this campaign trail with me and doing this work. I could never do this work without them, without my, my kids. Like, so I'm lucky to have them all. Well, and, you know, this is not to be a slight on biologists, but I feel like it's it's good that you're doing something where you get to talk to people because it's the, these connections. That's the whole thing we keep coming back to all the time. You're good at that. I feel like biologists get to be pretty introspective their whole lives. Uh, I'm probably more of an introvert, especially if you talk to my wife. She would say that. Um, but I, there's when you get to talk to people in the community and you get to actually listen to their stories – People just amaze you. I'm constantly amazed by everybody I get to talk to because they all have different views about politics and public office and about their life and what's actually happening. And I don't think everybody's always listening to them. That's my job. And to somehow also figure out how to bring together all the things that they're sharing with me and try to make good on figuring out how to solve some of those problems. Uh, i just lucky that people are kind enough to share those things with me when we do talk at the doors. I think this is a good note for us to end on. So before I do let you go, where can people go to learn more about your campaign? Well, one, uh, you can go to VargasForNebraska.com. Um, that's my website. Uh, you can also email us at info at VargasForNebraska.com, and we'll get back to you. And uh you can also find me in Little Italy a lot. That's my uh, my neighborhood, um, usually either at like Cafe Postal, Via Farina, or one of the other area, you know, coffee shops or, or restaurants. And, and then you'll get to meet my wife, Lauren, and my, my, my son, Luca, and my daughter, Ava. And just come up and have a conversation with us, please. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.